Good evening. Thank you all so much for joining us. My name is Rosemary Holt, and on behalf of Father Arnie and Father Charles, who is our new assistant director, and Mitch, um, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is joining us tonight and to introduce Professor Carter Sneed, director of the Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Carter is an internationally recognized expert in public bioethics. His specific areas of expertise include stem cell research, human cloning, assisted reproduction, neuroscience, abortion, and end-of-life matters. He has authored over 40 journal articles, books, chapters, and essays, of which have appeared in such publications and outlets as the New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and the Harvard Law Review Forum, to name a few. In addition to his scholarship and teaching, Professor Sneed has provided advice on legal and public policy dimensions of bioethical questions to officials in all three branches of the U.S. government and in several intergovernmental fora. Tonight, Carter will examine the powers at the disposal of the U.S. president to shape a culture of life in America and preview what the pro-life movement may be able to accomplish in the immediate future. And with that, please join me in welcoming Professor Carter Sneed. Can you all hear me? Is it? Okay, great, thank you. It is a, a real pleasure to be here at the Catholic Information Center. I'm a huge admirer of the work of Father Arnie and everyone who's involved with the center here. It's an extraordinary venue. We're blessed to have it in our nation's capital, and I'm just happy to be a part of uh, its programming here. I'll actually be back next week as well to speak to the Leonine Fellows, so it's going to be doubly exciting for me. Um, so it's surprising, I think, even, even now, standing here right now, that the presidential election of 2016 turned out as it did. I mean, every once in a while I forget, and I remember, and I'm surprised by what happened. <laughs> Um, and through the lens of one who wants to work to use the law and public policy to build a culture of life, it presents us with some surprising uh, and interesting uh, possibilities. And my talk this evening is really to, to walk through uh, sort of what the special and unique role of the presidency is in this regard. It's not uh, as limited as some might understand. It's actually quite extraordinary what the president can or, 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 uh, or, or and should do to try to promote a culture of life. Um, uh, and then we'll, we'll, it, I hope to leave time for discussion, question, and, and response uh, so we can have uh, an exchange about what you have in mind and, and some ideas that you have uh, going forward and to, and to get your reaction to, you know, to this, again, this surprising development. So the purpose of the talk is pretty straightforward. I mean to explore the many ways in which the U.S. presidency is uniquely situated to build a culture of life and to consider what might be possible following the 2016 election. And it's funny, I gave a talk this summer uh, at another event in which I was sketching out the future for the law and public policy nexus with a culture of life with the near certainty that the next president of the United States was going to be uh, Secretary of State Clinton. And in, in fact, I went back to that talk, and to prepare this talk, I basically just went back and flipped everything, <laughs> which is, which is it, it, it's, it was quite an exhilarating and interesting moment uh, as I was doing that. But anyhow, we'll see. So if, the, if her name pops up in here, that's just a, an accretion from <laughs> earlier this summer. Um, 
So the framework for the discussion, again, I want to say a brief word about law and culture, and I think you are a very sophisticated audience, and I don't need to spend too much time on this, but I would like to say something about law and culture and the relationship between those two goods uh, or those two mechanisms uh, in building uh, a culture that, that respects life. Uh, sometimes in our communities, and especially when we talk about politics, people are, some people are quick to say, well, you know, law is one thing, politics is one thing, culture is another, we focus on culture, maybe law can, we can take a break with that or, 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 or turn our eyes to changing hearts and minds. And I want to say a brief word about that idea and, and to push back a little bit uh, on what I think is a false dichotomy. Uh, I'm going to talk again. You're a very sophisticated audience. I don't need to spend a lot of time on the primacy of the life issue and why it is we believe what we believe about the dignity and equality of every human being from conception to natural death. But I will say something about it. And I'm going to try to sharpen my comments a little bit and focus on the Constitution and our country and what it means for our country to be a pro-life country or not. Um, and then I'm going to turn to the, the unique and, I believe, unparalleled powers of the American presidency. I think the powers of the presidency in this respect are frequently understated. Again, oftentimes in the run-up to an election, people will say, well, it doesn't really matter who the president is. It's a limited role. It's just to you know, enforce the laws that are passed by Congress. There are other more important actors in the law and policy space than the president. And I think that misunderstands and, and, and underestimates and understates dramatically the, the extraordinary, capacious powers that the president of the United States has in this regard. And then I'm going to turn and maybe reflect a little bit, project a little bit about what I think might happen and what could happen and what should happen uh, under this new administration and talk about what we can do as individuals and collectively to try to make that uh, a reality. So first, law and culture. Let me just say something very briefly about that. Law doesn't merely reflect culture. Okay, it certainly reflects, it certainly does reflect culture, law uh, if you want to understand what a culture values, if you want to understand what a given polity cares about, what goods they uh, strive for, what harms they're trying to avoid, you can, uh, you can look at the law and you can, and you can understand in a, in a kind of uh, codified or memorialized way, depending on whether you're talking about legislation or, or decisional law of courts, uh, what a particular society cares about, what matters to a particular society. So it for sure plays a reflective function, but it doesn't merely play a reflective function. It also plays a shaping role. That is a pedagogical function. For better or worse, law does in fact inform people's judgment about what justice entails, about what equality demands, about what human dignity is and in whom it inheres. And so when folks say, you know, culture is what matters, changing hearts and minds is what matters, I certainly agree that that matters in an enormous way. But law, we shouldn't forget the fact that law plays a dramatic role in constituting people's understanding, and, 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 and law itself changes hearts and minds. And as I say, for better or worse, uh, frequently in law school, we have a fantastic uh, group of law students at the University of Notre Dame, but even at, with our fantastic group of law students, sometimes when you're talking to someone about normative matters, about moral issues, ethical issues, you frequently, it's hard to tell whether they're describing something to you, describing the state of the law, or whether they're talking about what ought to be. And I think, again, this illustrates, and it's important to be clear about these things, but it also is a useful lesson that law does, in fact, dramatically constitute our understandings of these very important principles. And, not, and it doesn't do it in a brute way. Law is actually quite a fine-grained tool to shape people's understanding. It's not just criminal prohibition, this is bad, say no, or this is permitted, it's okay. There's actually quite a wide spectrum of regulatory messaging that the law can send to inform and morally shape the polity in its own judgment. 
you can have, of course, criminal prohibition, which is a very serious kind of injunction, which, which expresses condemnation and disapproval. And at the other end of the spectrum, you can have something that expresses the opposite, namely you know, endorsement, encouragement, and the, the most obvious form, especially in the context of bioethics, is federal funding. When you're talking about scarce resources, when the government decides to federally fund an activity, that shapes people's understanding of the value of that activity, and whether it's not just whether it's good or bad, but whether it's worthy uh, to use uh, to pursue using scarce resources. Uh, and between active encouragement and criminal prohibition, there's a vast array of possibilities for further signaling and messaging. There's silence, which is a kind of neutral tolerance of activity. There's record keeping, which shows that attention must be paid. There's surveillance. There is licensure. That's how medicine is regulated primarily. There is um, Prohibition with exceptions, there is, and, and, and on and on and on. It's actually, the law can speak in very nuanced ways in terms of shaping a person's understanding of, of, of justice and equality and human dignity. And so, in conclusion, little mini lecture, law is indispensable to changing culture. We can never, ever abandon the law. We can never absent ourselves from politics. We can never absent ourselves from the political process, from the policy-making process, because it's absolutely essential to changing hearts and minds. It's a false dichotomy to focus on culture and to ignore law. So, primacy of the life issue. Again, I have a feeling that everybody in this room is well familiar with the arguments that we've developed over a long period of time as to why every human being from conception to natural death is invaluable and indispensable, regardless of conditions, accidental characteristics, whether he or she is wanted or not, whether or not uh, he or she is vulnerable or small or immature physically, or whether one has nascent capacities that aren't quite online yet. So I'm not going to walk through the argument, the sort of pro-life argument for you. Um, But I will say something about the importance of getting that question right. The question of who counts as a member of the human family is, I believe, the most fundamental question that we as a civilization have to confront. And the stakes couldn't be higher. People have human rights and, a, and protection from private lethal violence, whereas non-persons live at the mercy of others and can be exploited and killed for their benefit. And that happens. Every single day that happens. It happens thousands and thousands of abortions every single day. And I'm not even talking about embryo-destructive research uh, and the like. It's a very serious matter. Um, and again, I, I don't need to walk through the, the details of the argument and why it's morally incoherent and radically discriminatory to exclude some people from the circle of humanity and the protection of the law because they don't meet the test of the strong. I mean, to, the strong set the rules and, 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 and the strong does what it will and the weak do what it must. That's what the law of abortion right now, unfortunately, in our country reflects. And I don't have to explain why that's unjust or why that's reprehensible. But what I do want to say again, is to focus our attention on what it means for us as a country to allow a situation in which the court believes that the Constitution itself, our founding document, denies the equal protection of the law to the weakest and most vulnerable members of the human family. Our own law, our our foundational law itself is the thing that prevents us from protecting the weak and the vulnerable. That's That's the vision of current controlling abortion jurisprudence, and that to me is not just wrong, but it's gravely corrupting and has corrosive effects uh, on us as a people, and it's shameful, and it's a stain on us and, and on the world. Because what kind of a nation withholds the protection of the laws from the defenseless children who are confronted by lethal violence on a massive scale? It's not a country that should be proud of itself, and it's something that we've been dealing with for quite some time. 
and it's time that it stopped. Here are the brute facts. There are one million abortions a year in the United States. This year that number might have ticked down a little bit, which is a wonderful blessing, but nevertheless, think about where we started and think about where we are in raw, in raw terms. The aspirations of embryo researchers contemplate the creation and destruction of hundreds of millions of human beings at the embryonic stage of development, not just for stem cell research, where they want to model all different sorts of diseases and create immunocompatible therapies for regenerative medicine, but also just to, for basic uh, learning the, the mechanisms and functions of biological development at early stages. I saw a report today that there was a, a, uh, a human-pig chimera that was created here in the United States, um, just as, as by way of, of example. And then turning to the opposite end of life spectrum, we see the number of assisted suicides increasing every year, along with the number of people suffering from age-related dementias. So you can see that that creates a sort of uh, crisis circumstance where we're going to have a lot of difficulties in pushing back against the natural impulses towards euthanasia and assisted suicide with the concurrent risks and problems of fraud, duress, abuse, and mistake, especially falling hard on the shoulders of those who are disabled, elderly, or part of stigmatized minorities in this country. So what can the president of the United States do in building a culture of life? We live in principle in a country where the federal government is a, is a government of enumerated powers, limited powers, where the states have plenary authority. That's in principle right, of course, but it turns out that over the, you know, over the course of our history, especially in the 20th century and, the tw and into this century as well, the role of the president of the United States has grown and the authority has grown along with the administrative state. Um, so let me say a little bit about what the president can do and why his or her power is just extraordinary in the terms that I'm talking about right now. First of all, the president of the United States is the head of the executive branch of the federal government and the 440 agencies that compose the federal administrative state. You all being a D.C. audience, I don't have to explain what that means. He, or he's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He's the head of state in the community of nations. He's the only federal official elected by our nation as a whole and as a result has an extraordinary bully pulpit uh, and capacity to shape uh, our understanding of, of right and wrong. And he is, for better or worse, the leader of the free world. So what the president can do with these enormous powers is to issue executive orders and memoranda clarifying or implementing federal law. And federal law is frequently written in broad strokes, allowing the president and the administrative agencies that he oversees to fill in the blanks with regulations uh, and, and uh, interpretive rules. Uh, the president can exercise discretion in the enforcement of laws. Uh, he can shape the federal judiciary for generations, including the Supreme Court, of course. He can block passage of all proposed federal legislation that lacks a supermajority. He can populate and mobilize the administrative state according to his vision, the Department of Justice, Health and Human Services, the Internal Revenue Service, the State Department, the EEOC. He can craft the foreign policy of the United States, both among nations and, importantly, in intergovernmental fora like the UN and UNESCO and the Council of Europe. And, of course, as I've already said, he can utilize an unparalleled bully pulpit. So what, with that background of enormous authority, 440 administrative agencies, 4,000 executive branch employees, what might happen, what could President Trump do to shape a culture of life in a positive way? What has he already done, actually? Well, um, let's talk about abortion. It's important, again, I don't mean to waste your time. I know you guys have thought about these questions a lot. and You know a lot of background information. But the current law of abortion is worth revisiting, especially since it was modified somewhat last summer 
by the whole women's health versus Hellerstedt case, which made it worse. If that were possible, it actually made the law of abortion even more problematic. But as you know, the law of abortion in America is entirely a creature of the Supreme Court since 1973. And since whole women's health versus Hellerstedt last summer in 2016, a bare majority of justices have claimed for themselves the authority to decide whether the benefits of a particular pre-viability abortion restriction justify the burdens to a woman's ultimate freedom to decide to terminate her pregnancy and thus the life of her unborn child. So it is explicit now in the terms of Hellerstedt that certainly pre-viability, and that doesn't end my analysis, by the way. We're not just talking about pre-viability. But pre-viability, we have what Justice White referred to, and I'm paraphrasing, as a kind of um, ad hoc health care review board for any law that's passed by by the states or the federal government. Justice Breyer and his colleagues on the court, who are passionate advocates for abortion rights, will examine uh, the the restriction in question. In Hellerstedt, it was two restrictions. It was admitting privileges, and it was ambulatory surgical center standards uh, to which abortion clinics in Texas would have to to comply. Uh, They evaluate whether or not the burdens of those restrictions are justified by the benefits. And they begin by not recognizing hardly any benefits of restricting abortion. So you can imagine how even what you and I would regard as not burdensome at all would strike them as quite burdensome. So it's a deep problem. Uh, At all stages of development, I'm not talking about pre-viability now, any restriction on abortion as such, not an ancillary side constraint, but any restriction on abortion as such must yield when the abortionist determines that some aspect of the woman's well-being, not merely physical or even psychological health, but also economic and familial health, would be benefited by the procedure. That is straight from uh, Doe v. Bolton, which is a case that was decided on the same day as Roe v. Wade. Roe says any restriction on abortion has to include a health exception. Doe v. Bolton says health means what the abortionist says what it means, and health includes and is broad enough to encompass any aspect of a woman's well-being beyond even the physical and psychological, but also to to encompass the, the familial. Side constraints on abortion, that is waiting periods, informed consent, parental involvement laws, partial birth abortion bans, must now satisfy a majority of justices, again, that the benefits outweigh the burdens. The bottom line in this country, and it's a shameful bottom line, is that abortion on demand is the law of the land throughout nine months of pregnancy for any reason the abortionist can articulate that's relevant to any aspect of the mother's well-being. And that puts us about in the family of the most radical abortion rights, abortion access regimes in in the world as Marianne Glennon observed in 1987. So, what's possible now, given Hellerstedt, given the composition of the court? Uh, Well, President Trump begins with, and let's start by talking about executive orders. President Trump has already actually uh, signed executive orders or executive memoranda terminating the funding of organizations overseas that perform and support or advocate for abortion. That's loosely known as the Mexico City policy. It used to be the case that when pro-life presidents came into office, they would do two things. They would instate the, reinstate the Mexico City policy, which, of course, President Trump did. And then they would also defund uh, an agency of the UN, which is involved with the China's coercive abortion policies. In this um, uh, memoranda that President Trump just executed, actually the Mexico City policy and that defunding of the UN agency have been combined and have made, been made applicable system-wide to all Uh, sources of foreign aid coming from the federal government. Um, Also, you know, we have the Affordable Care Act in place. I understand that there's 
people on Capitol Hill that are seeking ways to uh, repeal and, and, and replace that law. But even so, with that law and the broad mandates that it provides, there are uh, ways, there are probably ways that the president, through executive action or his, his agents, could uh, limit access to abortion under the Affordable Care Act because there are, in current, in, as it currently stands, uh, federally subsidized plans that cover elective abortions. There are taxpayer subsidies of plans that cover abortions, $855 billion. And in one GAO report, they found that there, in fact, is no separate abortion premium. They're not actually segregating the funds as they promised and resolved that they would. So there are deep problems with the Affordable Care Act. Um, President Trump said in advance of his uh, election regarding legislative interventions that he would sign laws that ban abortion of children who are capable of experiencing pain, he would defund Planned Parenthood, and he would make the Hyde Amendment permanent. Now, when I say he would do these things, what I mean by that is he would sign into law the, the bills that would come to his desk from Congress. And this, again, is an extraordinary moment because we have... Uh, majorities in both houses of Congress, probably major well for sure in the House and the and the Senate is a little trickier, but there are things that can be done there as well to get legislation that you know is it attaching the pro-life legislation to must vote you know to bills that, that, that would command a majority of support, uh, and to get this done. In fact, uh, my understanding is the House has already passed a bill making the Hyde Amendment permanent um, and also extending which Hyde Amendment by its terms only applied to Medicaid, extending it to all sources of federal funding. And that is that, so the House has done its job in that respect. And having, again, pro-life majorities in Congress and having a president that is willing to sign it is, is an amazing kind of alignment that we haven't had in quite some time. And one of the extraordinary things um, that President Obama was able to accomplish in the past eight years was to stop really common sense legislation modest legislation to restrict abortions. For example, he threatened to veto a bill that would ban abortion uh, for the sake of genetic discrimination, sex discrimination, or race discrimination. You would think that a movement, the abortion rights movement, which is nested in an idea of equality for women, or at least ostensibly is, would, would be supportive of a bill to ban abortion for sex selection. But President Obama being, you know, again, this, this illustrates the essential role of the President of the United States. You can't get anything done in a positive way legislatively unless you have a president who's willing to sign these bills into law. And President Trump has been really quite forthcoming, obviously because people had serious doubts about his commitment to the pro-life issue. He had, he sort of changed his view uh, relatively recently, and I think people were, you know, concerned that he didn't, his heart wasn't really in it. So he went out of his way to make some real um, clear uh, promises in this respect. Um, now, the Hyde Amendment is worth spending a second on. The Hyde Amendment, um, it turns out, according to those who study these things empirically, that public funding of abortion has the greatest impact on its incidence. It's not surprising. It also has an important impact on people's understanding of the rightness or wrongness of abortion. When it's subsidized by the government, as I said a little while ago, that actually impacts people's conception of the rightness or wrongness of the underlying activity. But it turns out there's a, you know, of all the debates we have about what, what kind of laws can, can drive the abortion rate down, is it, is it anti-poverty programs, is it, you know, what is it exactly? Those who study these questions closely, my understanding is it's, it's pretty much a matter of consensus. The, the, re, the, the one correlation we're very confident about is when you publicly fund abortion, the numbers go up, and when you cut off public funding, it goes down. And this is actually, was, it was a little surprising, the rhetoric was lamented directly by uh, opponents of the Hyde Amendment who said 
there are all kinds of babies that are born uh, that, would, that shouldn't have been born because these women should have gotten abortions. These poor women have to have these babies. So all these poor babies in the world that shouldn't be here. That, that's, I mean, I, I didn't think that we were sort of coarse enough to have that argument be in the public square, but I guess, I guess we are. Um, studies show that the Hyde Amendment, if it were repealed, the rate of abortions could as much as double, or sorry, could increase as much by 50%. That's not the same thing as doubling. In a negative sense, President Trump will be valuable if, if the majorities in Congress change in the next, you know, before his term expires, to veto the Women's Health Protection Act, which was the single greatest threat to the pro-life movement, I think, on Capitol Hill. The Women's Health Protection Act would sweep away virtually all pro-life laws in the states, could eliminate federal conscience protections, it would eliminate all regulations on abortions that don't equally apply to comparable medical procedures. Now, I don't think any medical procedure is comparable to an abortion, but there are those who do. And it would eliminate the Hyde Amendment. And having a president who is willing to say no, if, in, if the day ever comes where we have majorities in Congress that would support this, uh, that's extremely valuable. Um, how about administrative agencies? Now, recall the Department of Health and Human Services. And Tom Price is the, is the nominee to be the Secretary of Health and Human Services. He's a avowedly pro-life individual. He's passionately pro-life. He's made representations about what he's going to do. Uh, as the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Recall that the entire debacle involving the Little Sisters of the Poor and EWTN and all the different Catholic and uh, social service agencies involving the University of Notre Dame, involving other institutions that were forced to, uh, to comply with the, with the so-called contraceptive mandate, but it went beyond contraceptives. It included drugs whose mechanism of action might very well be embryocidal, preventing the implantation, or even destabilizing an already implanted embryo in the case of LO1, the week after pill. Um, and IUDs are also can have embryocidal effects as well. Recall the preventative services mandate was entirely a creature of the administrative agencies. It was Kathleen Sebelius, along with Treasury and Labor, that imposed that rule on the entire country. They did it by interpreting an overbroad provision of the Affordable Care Act that, uh, that the that Employers will, will uh, provide without co-insurance or co-pays uh, pre preventative services for women. Well, they interpreted that phrase, as agencies do. They fill in the blanks. And they interpreted it in a way that conformed to their vision of, of, uh, of, of radical, um, uh, radical access to contraception and abortion and, and radical opposition to widespread and genuine religious freedom. And that happened because of the people in charge of these administrative agencies. And the difference between Tom's, uh, Tom Price and Kathleen Sebelius is like night and day. He can, he can, in fact, issue an interpretation if there is a preventative services mandate in the, whatever the final iteration of the Affordable Care Act is after they get done with it. Uh, he certainly won't interpret it to include, to require the Little Sisters of the Poor to give IUDs to its staff. Um, he could include, as... as, as um, uh, Secretary Levitt and other and and um, and Tommy Thompson did in the in George W. Bush's administration inclusion of the unborn in the S chip program. That's the that's the the, the it's a it's a health care health insurance program for uh, children in poverty in the states. He can reverse grant rules for programs, for example, for victims of sex trafficking, privileging abortion and excluding objectors. You'll recall the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops had a migrant and refugee services program that was extraordinarily effective by all measures, helping the, the victims of human trafficking. 
and their grant was not renewed after a political appointee in the Sibelius HHS department intervened to move them to the back of the line because they wouldn't refer for abortions uh, or, or provide contraception. Those are the grant rules they put in place. These will be reversed under a pro-life HHS. The FDA itself had, you know, was, was quite active in expanding the protocol for the abortion pill, RU46, and access to emergency contraception. The CDC pursued a kind of Zika virus policy which could you know, imaginably promote abortion. That's not going to happen under a pro-life uh, uh, pro CDC or a pro-life presidency with it's sufficiently active in these questions. The Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. My state of Indiana tried to defund Planned Parenthood. In fact, it wasn't just Planned Parenthood. Mitch Daniels um, went sort of painstakingly through the locations, mapped out every single health care facility in Indiana that provides abortions, and made sure that within five miles of those facilities there was a comparable health care provider that women could go to for their, for their reproductive health and other needs, such that when he defunded all the abortion-providing health care entities in Indiana, there would be no disruption in women's coverage. Nevertheless, we got a letter, the state of Indiana got a letter from the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services threatening to terminate all Medicaid funding, all funding for the poorest of the poor to get health insurance unless and until our legislature restored funding to abortion-providing institutions. That's extraordinary. And you, can, and you already know that, especially in the wake of the Center, for Medica um, the Center for Medical Progress, undercover videos involving fetal tissue experimentation and, and possibly uh, trafficking um, at Planned Parenthood, states all around the country have tried to defund Planned Parenthood and haven't been able to because of a particular interpretation of the Medicaid statute. That can be modified by Congress, or even CMS might be able to clarify what the ambiguity in the meaning of that, of that rule. Department of Justice. I mean, the Attorney General is essential in building a culture of life. For one thing, the Department of Justice can stop the frivolous prosecution of pro-life protesters under the Free Access to Clinic Entrances Act. They can shutter the clinic access um, prosecution unit at the Department of Justice. They can cease advocacy for abortion access in the federal courts, as they've done, the Solicitor General's office has done. The IRS can, uh, well, obviously protect tax exemptions for religious institutions, but can stop auditing pro-life nonprofits, and it can stop adoption tax credit audits. I personally was audited, <laughs> as were 69% of adopted parents who sought to take a tax credit from adoption-related expenses, apparently an area in which there's virtually no fraud, 69% of families taking the tax credit were audited. 96% were asked for more information by the IRS. That didn't happen in prior administrations, and you could imagine, hopefully, that it wouldn't happen in this one either, given the priorities. The State Department, interventions at the UN, UNESCO, the Council of Europe. When you have a Secretary of State who stands up and says, there is an international human right to abortion, it's part of comprehensive reproductive health care, and we're going to fight for it in these intergovernmental fora. These little countries like Costa Rica or other countries that try to hold the line on abortion and as an international human right have no chance at all. The United States is oftentimes the only barrier between these little countries getting rolled by other more industrialized secular nations. Uh, the State Department should and hopefully will stop conditioning foreign aid on expansion of abortion. Stop funding, we've already stopped funding organizations overseas that provide abortions. And as I've said already, there, our delegations to the UN and UNESCO can oppose a right to abortion in international law under the aegis of reproductive health. 
So that's all the stuff you can do right now with a bad Supreme Court in place. So let's talk about draining the swamp. And by the swamp, I mean a, the, I don't, the metaphor doesn't really work, but I put it up there just because that's what he says. <laughs> the future of Roe. All right. So judicial appointments, the composition of the Supreme Court. There are four, perhaps five. Justice Kennedy's a little bit of a mystery right now. He didn't say a word in Hellerstedt, oddly. He's been the abortion czar since, you know, since he's been on the court. His vote has been decisive, and he just let Justice Breyer uh, go ahead and do his thing in that case. It's quite surprising, without any comment at all. Very surprising. There are four or perhaps five justices who believe that the Constitution itself pre prevents extending the equal protection of the law to unborn children in the name of equality. That's perverse, right? Imagine just for a second, think about this, and I don't want to get in the weeds, but what we're talking about is a provision of the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, which was, uh, which was ratified in 1868 in the wake of America's shameful history of not extending equal protection of the law to all members of the human family and all members of our society, right? We fought a war over this. And so this law was adopted at a time when abortion was banned in multiple jurisdictions at the time, that, in 1868, and these justices think that that provision, that provision which is meant to advance the equality and dignity of every human person without exception, is the very thing that prevents us from recognizing the dignity and humanity and, uh, of the unborn child and extending basic legal protections to her. What kind of an impoverished theory of constitutional interpretation would you have to have to read into that 1868 provision adopted for the antithesis of these reasons to be the very anchor of abortion rights jurisprudence? It's quite extraordinary. It should be, frankly, disqualifying to be on the bench if that's how you read the 14th Amendment. But nevertheless... We have four, maybe five justices who think that. We have three justices who believe that the Constitution does not prevent states from protecting the unborn, and we have one vacancy. And look at the age of the current justices. Uh, Justice Ginsburg is 83. Justice Kennedy, that, this month, that was from this summer. He's already 80. He turned 80 this past summer. Uh, Breyer, 77. You can see up here on the screen. And, of course, Justice Scalia passed away um, uh, prematurely. So, again, surprisingly, unlike any other... well. President Trump is unlike really any political figure that we've encountered, <laughs> as far as I can tell. He was totally straightforward. He wrote a letter to dear, he wrote a dear pro-life leader letter in 2016, uh, in which he said explicitly, I am committed to nominating pro-life justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then he gave us a list, which was produced by some wonderful people. Um, and, and now compare that, compare that, there we go, I see you here, Cindy. Compare that with this. This is from the old slideshow. She said, we need a president who will defend women's health and rights and appoint Supreme Court justices who recognize Roe v. Wade as settled law. I would not appoint someone who didn't think Roe v. Wade is settled law. So this past election cycle, we had an extraordinary openness among the candidates about this very issue, and they committed dramatically, imprudently, I would say, to outcomes with respect to the justices that they're going to appoint to the Supreme Court. Now, if you, uh, with two pro-life appointments, two, one of which is coming next week, we could reverse Roe v. Wade, reverse Casey, reverse Hellerstedt, at the very least return the abortion issue to the political process and open the door to the equal protection of the law for the unborn child. And if you believe what you read, one of these three fellas might be the first up. We don't know. There's Judge Pryor on the left. That's Judge Gorsuch in the middle, and that's Judge Hardiman on the right. Um, 
all would be absolutely fantastic in my judgment for whatever that's worth. I don't know. What, what do I know? But I think, I think they'd be great. Um, and that's not even to mention the composition of the federal appellate courts. One percent of appeals are taken by the U.S. Supreme Court. Ninety-nine percent of cases are resolved at the U.S. Court of Appeals or federal circuit level. There are 167 judgeships in the 12 circuit courts, not including the federal circuit. If you look at these circuits, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 9th, 10th, and 11th, you have a, and the D.C. Circuit, you have a majority of Democratic appointees. The reason for that, by the way, in part, is because Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster for appointing judges to the U.S. Court of Appeals and therefore packed the D.C. Circuit and others. And now that that filibuster is gone, there's no limit or restraint, really, on the Republicans doing precisely the same thing with their judges. There are only four uh, courts of appeals that are a majority of Republican appointees. So this is something that will also uh, be ground on which the culture of life is played out with the appointments of these judges. So I don't want to keep you too long, but there are other life issues to think about besides abortion. We have embryo-destructive research. Uh, the HHS uh, officials could provide a correct interpretation of what's called the Dickey Amendment, named for Jay Dickey, one of the co-sponsors in 1996, which forbids federal funding of research in which embryos are created, destroyed, or subjected to certain defined risks. That provision was interpreted very narrowly by President Clinton's uh, general counsel of HHS to show you again how personnel matters. Uh, and that constricted definition has applied ever since. Uh, interpretation has applied ever since. The, HH, the current HHS could refine that understanding and make it consistent with the original understanding and plain meaning, frankly, of what the, um, of what the drafters of that amendment had me meant, which is to say to, to defund all research that depends on, relies on, incentivizes the use and destruction of embryos. Of course, President um, Trump could, and I hope will, discontinue federal funding of embryonic stem cell research. And, and we could have a strengthening of human subjects protections, uh, regulations for the unborn uh, as well. And that, by the way, comes up a lot in the fetal tissue context. Uh, Planned Parenthood has already, been has already demonstrated that it's willing to manipulate the timing method and, and method of abortion for the sake of harvesting particular kinds of fetal tissue. If you strengthen the human subject protection guidelines, uh, that, could, that, could, that could curb some of that, not all of it. Um, but but and it is already the case in federally funded research that a fetus who is, or an unborn child, I should say, that's slated for abortion is subject to the same risk as a child who's, who's destined to be delivered, which is great. But that only applies in a fe one federal statute and applies to only federally funded activities. We could expand that um, in, in, in various of regulatory means. By regulatory means, it wouldn't even require congressional uh, action. More issues coming, human cloning, gene editing, three-parent embryos. I already talked about the human-animal hybrid issue as well as a wide array of dehumanizing, destructive forms of assisted reproductive technologies. All of this is going to be uh, on the minds and within, in the portfolios of individuals, officials, and administrative agencies, and it could rise all the way up to the White House itself. And assisted suicide, we've seen a march, uh, an inexorable march for assisted suicide. Washington, D.C., California, Colorado. I've already sketched out what the concerns here are. This is something also that the, that the U.S. government Despite the fact that these are generally state-by-state state issues, there are ways in which the federal government could get involved in a salutary fashion to, to help with this. And, and finally, this is the last substantive issue I'm going to talk about, is conscience protections for health care providers. Um, President Obama, one of the very first things he did was eliminate 
all the regulations that the Bush HHS had put in place to protect conscience for health care providers, fleshing out the Weldon Amendment, which, does, which actually is a statutory rider that gives those protections. Um, they swept away the mechanism for the enforcement of these rights uh, that the Bush administration had put in place, and, um, and, the, and they vigorously engaged those states that would run afoul of these federally guaranteed conscience protections. President Obama undid all that, and um, this is the very last thing I'm going to say uh, by way of example and discussion. Um, I can't emphasize enough, and I've already said this once, 4,000 people will, will be employed by the White House, by the administrative agencies atop which the White House sits. And there are micro decisions that are made every single day from people who have jobs you've never heard of before that could have extraordinary impact on a culture of life. And let me just give you one example. Does anybody recognize this person? She's not missing, don't worry. Um, <laughs> she's, uh, this is, this is, this is a, an important federal official. You, you know who that is. Okay, why do you know who that is? Uh, the all right, thanks. We have, a ringer, we have a ringer in the audience. Most people don't know that, all right? That's the first person I've ever met that knows who Johnson is. <laughs> so there was a, we're in D.C., obviously. So um, there was a California regulation. It wasn't even a statute. It was a surgical abortion mandate that the California Department of Managed Health Care in 2014 mandated abortion coverage in all health plans, and complaints were filed with the federal HHS Office of Civil Rights. Now, we had a whole slew of regulations that provided a mechanism for, for, for enforcing our, the conscience protections that are provided by federal law. That was all wiped away by President Obama and replaced with a line that basically just said, go talk to the Office of Civil Rights. They'll help you if, if you need help. Um, and uh, so the people who were adversely affected by this regulation in California sought relief under the Weldon Amendment, which says there's um, funding for a state will be, you know, there'll be no federal funding for a state if it subjects any health care entity to discrimination on the basis that the health care entity does not provide, pay for, provide coverage of, or refer for abortions. And in this subsection, the term health care entity includes a health insurance plan. So it would seem that that regulation squarely conflicts with the guarantee of the Weldon Amendment, and there are people who have, who have very serious consequences for that violation of the Weldon Amendment. Well, as you pointed out, Jocelyn Samuels, director of HHS Office of Civil Rights, is the person who you're supposed to go to when, you have a, a, when your religious liberty or conscience protections, when your, when your conscientious objections are not being listened to as, as you are entitled to under federal law. And who is Jocelyn? Do you know this? Jocelyn Samuels was a longtime DOJ official, She's a former staffer for Senator Kennedy. Prior to her tenure as Department of Justice, she served as vice president at the National Women's Law Center in Washington, D.C. And the National Women's Law Center holds the view that abortion is a key part of women's liberty, equality, and economic security. Every woman, no matter where she lives, should have access to abortion when she needs it. So that's a reference to the Hyde Amendment or states that defund uh, uh, abortion uh, providers with federal funds or state funds, rather. And then says, we will work to defeat proposed laws like bans on private and public insurance coverage of abortion. They are actually opposed to the Weldon Amendment, explicitly opposed to the Weldon Amendment, and the vice president of this organization is now there in charge in the Office of Civil Rights at HHS trying to protect people whose rights under the Weldon Amendment are being violated. But virtually no one other than the person right over there who's very thoughtful <laughs> knows who that is. You should have, really shouldn't have even said for the, you knew where I was going, you shouldn't have just kept quiet. Um, <laughs> The, uh, but in any event, 
her response was, there's no healthcare entity here uh, that's complaining. The healthcare plans that are being subjected to this rule are not complaining. And therefore, the direct consequence of this mandate, which falls on your shoulders, uh, is, is not something that we have uh, a remedy to, which is risable. But nevertheless, she's the, she's the buck stops with Jocelyn Samuels. That's her 2016 letter. So, personnel matters. Personnel is policy. And there are 4,000 people who will, and I hope some of them are in the room, that will get jobs in the White House and the administrative agencies, who will have the opportunity to build a culture of life or to stymie a culture of life. So what are the possibilities in sum? And this is really the conclusion. We can undo the constitutionalized lethal discrimination against the unborn. We can reverse a corrupt and corrupting understanding of our Constitution by the Supreme Court. We can restore institutions of civil society that teach and bear witness to a richer moral anthropology, like the Little Sisters of the Poor, for example. We can protect individuals' rights to conscience and religious freedom. We can turn away from dehumanizing and destructive scientific research. We can reject dangerous perversions of the medical art for patients who are dying, who are in pain. And we can export a culture of life around the world. All of this is possible in part with assistance and contributions made by the executive branch of the United States government. What do we do? Well, of course, we should support and encourage the president and his administration in this task. No matter what we think of him or what we thought of him during the campaign, and I'm not here, I'm not defending, I'm not here to defend the president. I'm not saying you have to like the president. What I'm saying is when the president and his administration, and the administration is bigger than the president, by the way. It's, an, it's a massive, sprawling, for better or worse, governmental branch that can do extraordinary things and we should be supportive and encouraging as they as that branch moves forward to promote a culture of life and in our own individual capacities we can courageously and lovingly witness to the beauty truth and goodness of our faith to others which also on an individual one-to-one level will change hearts and minds Um, and this is important i have to remind myself of this every day and i don't remind myself this i should remind myself but i frequently forget we have to continue to love each other as Christ loved us, including especially those who perform, promote, and profit from the life-destroying practices that we fight against. And this last slide I did leave in from the summer, despite the fact that I was in a dark mood and I thought things were going to go very badly uh, for us uh, as a civilization, especially as it regards culture of life issues. But even with this unusual and surprising opportunity, we have to continue to pray with the faith that no matter what happens, no matter who's president or who controls the executive branch, we actually know how all of this ends. We all know how this ends or we wouldn't be here right now. And that is with the victory of our Lord. So thank you very much for your attention. And I will take questions. Take questions? Okay. We've got a, we've got a few minutes for questions. Uh, yeah, I've got a question about Mr. Trump. Um, yeah. Now, um, he has... Um, made some statements some statements about uh well first of all let me just ask um say uh none none of our spiritual leaders have ever asked mr trump a very simple multiple choice question okay and that is does donald trump worship a god alone b mammon alone c both god and mammon or d neither god nor mammon right now he has he promotes the gospel of Prosperity. His books are about prosperity, and I believe he follows the the prosperity of gospel gospel of Norman Vincent Peale and the Presbyterian Church. And um, so, so I'm wondering if there's a conflict there 
um, that, that could, uh, it really doesn't have much of a pro-life background. And, and, and during the campaign, he, he had said that if he lost uh, what he would do, he'd go back to a very good life and take a long vacation. Well, that suggests to me that he really values his money, and no committed pro-lifer I've seen at the, the March for Life rally would say something like that. And Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and, and, and Barack Obama can make more money than most people's yearly salaries with one Shakespearean speech. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how money uh, uh, affects this pro-life versus pro-abortion. Mm. There's a lot of money in abortion, yeah, and yeah. we have to, to do what we need to do. Yeah, no, so uh, again, I, obviously I can't, I don't, I can't speak to President Trump or anybody's interior spiritual life and commitments. I've heard everything you've heard, and, you know, I wouldn't, you know, again, I don't, I'm not going to speculate on those things. And I agree that you're putting your finger on something essential, though, is that money really does drive, there's an interesting correlation between money and the pursuit of money and the possession of money and abortion itself, because abortion in some ways is meant to snuff out a life in process that is going to be what people believe is burdensome or a hindrance to their enjoyment of their money. And, and it's, it's interesting to see how, you know, um, again, I'm not here to defend any political person or a political party. And you can see frequently, there's frequently politicians who are cut of a certain cloth and sort of country club style folks, silk stocking style folks. And those people tend not to be very sympathetic to our position on the life issues. And, um, and I, so I'm, I'm tracking what you're saying in the terms of the correlations that you're raising. And I have the worries that you worry about as well. My talk this evening was meant to be, I think, more cold-blooded than that. My, my, my view is... What I care about, given all the givens, as one of my colleagues likes to say, Professor Richard Garnett, if, if, if given what we, what we have and what we're presented with, what can we do with it? What can we do with it? Um, the thing that makes me happy is that Hillary Clinton is not president of the United States. That, that's, that, that's something that, that I, feel, I feel like, I mean, my, my other colleague, Jerry Bradley, whose son I see over there in the back, said that the pro-life movement survived a date with the, with the firing squad um, uh, in this last election. And so I, I don't have any answers to you. I share your concerns. I have heard what you've heard, and I wouldn't, you know, and, and I share the concerns that you have. What matters to me at this moment, standing right here, is how stable are these commitments that were made during the campaign. Uh, you look around a particular individual. Who in the administration is doing what? We have Kellyanne Conway, who's very highly placed, will be speaking tomorrow at the Marshall Life. I have no doubts about her, her depth of pro-life commitment. My governor, Mike Pence, I have no doubts about him. I have no doubts about Andrew Bremberg, who runs the Domestic Policy Council, my former student at the Catholic University of America years ago, fantastic young man. I have no doubts about Tom Price. I have no doubts about the team that's built around an apparatus that goes beyond the individual him or herself. So what I'm confronted with is... What, what can I do with what I've got? Because I am a cold-blooded Southern Italian person. And that's, and that's, that's how I think. And that's probably to my discredit. Um, but but that's, that's, the, uh, that's, that's what I'm bringing to the table. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying, and I share your concerns. Yeah, and I respect your, what you're saying, too. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just curious if there's work going on. I know you, you mentioned some of the various technologies that are problematic relative to the life issues. And I'm wondering if there's any, uh, any work that's really digging into how do we discern the difference between good and bad technology and how it's applied. Because it seems like there's, I think that yeah. in all sorts of areas, not just in the pro-life, the specific 
impacts on the human person, but in how we interact with nature in general, right. there seems to be a lack of discernment in that. And, and it seems like there's some real ambiguity, and I'm wondering if there's any work being done to help clarify those nuances, Yeah, even though that's maybe a deeper, you know, sure. in issue. Yeah. Well, no, I, that's, that's what I, that, I mean, that's what, in, in its best iteration, that's what bioethics should be, and that's what public bioethics should be as it intersects with law and public policy. So, yeah, there are plenty of wonderful scholars out there that are trying to create frameworks or understand or, 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 or analyze different kinds of technologies and make judgments about that. And with by doing that, you can kind of move towards a framework for, for assessing technology more generally. Um, pulling it back to the question of the President of the United States, I was fortunate enough to serve as general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics. And the chairman of that council was a man named Leon Cass, who is one of my favorite people in the world, a mentor and an extraordinary thinker, and there are very few people that uh, can do what he does in terms of morally compelling and clarifying reflections on technology and its uses. And one of the things that we did um, on the council, we had, one rep we had multiple reports that we did. One of the reports we did was on enhancement technologies, things that seem like they're good because they improve people's conditions and they, uh, like all technology, have multiple uses, some of which are, are, are neutral, some are good, some are bad. And instead of going technology by technology, it's called Beyond Therapy, and it's online, and you can look it up. I think it's a valuable template for this. It analyzes technologies not in terms of the technologies themselves, but in terms of the human aspirations to which they're applied. So aging bodies, happy souls, um, better performance, happy children, like the things that we want to do, the goods, the human goods that we care most about. And I think this was Leon's sort of signature contribution to the debate in public bioethics is he really wanted to refocus our understanding. And Gil Mylander, who was on the President's Council as well, is beautiful in his writing on this as well. He's also a fellow of the Center for Ethics and Culture. Um, he, uh, he's wonderful about drawing our eyes back to the original conversations in bioethics in the 60s with Paul Ramsey and other great thinkers like him who, who approached these questions, again, from the perspective of human goods and human flourishing rather than Technology by technology, what is this trying to do? I think, that, I think that at least is a good starting place to analyze the sort of question that you're asking about. Thank you. Um, the focus here has been on abortion of embryos. Should not a pro-life culture be much broader than that yes, yes. to encompass respect for people who are alive of other religions, mm. Other ethnicities, yes, other yeah. races, people that are very different from us. Yes. How can we be pro-life by not respecting those who are alive? I agree. What you, I agree with everything you just said, hundred uh, percent, total agreement with you. The fundamental message of the pro-life movement. That what I've been talking about is one application, namely the the beginning of life and a little bit on the end of life. But what? But there's a great middle part between the beginning and the end of life that's essential as well. And the core insight and message of the pro-life movement is that everybody matters and that nobody is better than anyone else. Everyone is inter is deserves the basic protections of the law and not just the basic protections of the law, but also our respect and our love and our support. And so being genuinely pro-life has entailments for everything that you just talked about. We're not just talking about biotechnology. We're talking about neighbor relations, we're talking about foreign policy, we're talking about family issues, we're talking about taxes and poverty and immigration and everything that you just mentioned. So absolutely I agree with everything you just said. And that to me is, and connecting those things are really essential, it seems to me, in evangelizing people to the pro-life message on the topics that I've been talking about. Because we have to be clear 
that this is a consistent this is a consistent application of the norm of fundamental equality, dignity, and respect, and radical hospitality and welcoming uh, uh, neighbor love is what we're talking about. So I completely agree with everything you just said. We have time for two more questions. Any concerns about any of the three finalists for the Supreme Court nomination? <laughs> Says the son of a, of a federal judge. Uh, <laughs> nice thing. Good to see you, Kevin. Uh, I have, I, I love, I think they're all three terrific. Absolutely terrific. I, I think any of them would do a phenomenal job and would be uh, faithful um, interpreters of the Constitution. And uh, they're all brilliant uh, in different ways. And, um, I mean, Judge Pryor, Judge Pryor is an old friend. I'm from Alabama. Judge Pryor is an old friend of mine. I love Judge Pryor. I think he'd be extraordinary. He's courageous. He's, he's feisty. He's smart as can be. Uh, amazing guy. Um, Judge Gorsuch is extraordinary. Wrote an amazing book on assisted suicide. He's scholarly. He's, he was a student of my colleague John Finnis at Oxford University. He's, he's just a, an amazing, wide-ranging mind, humane, thoughtful, smart, is a, a, a beautiful writer. Uh, judge Hardiman, love Judge Hardiman, fantastic, great judge, uh, Notre Dame guy, daughter is a student of mine, <laughs> and um, he's, just, he's just fantastic, um, all three of them. Couldn't do better than those three. Uh, first, thanks, Professor Sneed, for the Thank you. Really Thank you, great. John. Uh, as the director of a pro-life nonprofit in California, the whole California Department of Managed Healthcare thing and Yikes. its relation to the Weldon Amendment uh, concerns me a lot. Yeah. Um, what are some of the issues for Californians, like, if we want to <laughs> get the federal government to press on this issue? Is there a difficulty with not having the right plaintiffs that we would need, like, an insurance provider or well, I would, I would wait and see. I mean, again, I have every expectation that the conscience regs that were wiped away will come back in some form. Okay. And the mechanisms of enforcement are not simply going to be talk to Jocelyn Samuels. Jocelyn Samuels will right. return to wherever it was she came from, the National Women's Law Center or, or work for a senator or something like that. Um, I, I think my view is that, is that uh, I, especially given Tom Price, I'm, I'm confident that help would be on the way. Uh, in, in, on that narrow issue. Regarding the problem of California, I don't have a lot to tell you. Uh, it's a beautiful, just enjoy the weather until the earthquake comes, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, can everyone join me in a round of applause for Thank Professor Carter Sneed? <laughs>